Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. It is springtime here in D.C. So there are these amazing purple flowers that are in bloom outside my house. I swear that is what heaven will smell like. Everything is in bloom in D.C. And I'm just remembering how much I love being outside, I think, after a year pretty much spent inside. And also how much I love spring in D.C. If you haven't visited D.C. in the springtime, put it on your bucket list. It's awesome. Everything is in bloom. Um, But Lauren, since you grew up in Florida, you might not know this, but I grew up in New England and seasons in New England, it goes from winter to mud season to summer. Spring is pretty non-existent. It's just like two months of massive amounts of snow melting and making the ground really wet and nasty and you like uncover in the backyard that random glove that you lost back in January that you had put on the snowman and that happened like almost every year. True story. Uh, So long story short, loving springtime. Lauren, growing up in Florida, did you guys have spring or did it pretty much just go right to like crazy hot summer? So I feel like our seasons weren't like summer, fall. It was more like beach season, hurricane season, (laughs) football season, (laughs) Christmas season, and then repeat. (laughs) So, I mean, we got a couple nice weeks in December and January. And actually, I want to say it was this weekend. It was warmer in D.C. than it was in Florida. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Hmm, That's funny, though. I mean, those seasons, they don't sound bad. It sounds like a good... No, they're great. And Virginia, I have... You love these blossoms, and they are beautiful, but oh my gosh, they're driving me crazy. My eyes itch, my throat itches, my ears feel weird, and I just like... (laughs) Like, great. They're beautiful. Now fall down. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm one of those blessed people that doesn't really get allergies. So, yeah, I'm just, <laughs> just loving it while everyone else is sneezing. But this week, if uh, you are outside loving spring or maybe you're up in New England dealing with the mud or down in Florida, wherever you are, go ahead and take a picture outside your door and post it on Instagram. Use the hashtag problematic women so that we can see it. I'm going to post a picture of the beautiful purple flowers that I'm so enjoying. And if anyone knows what the flowers are, let me know because I'm not sure what they are. Uh, But I need to know so that one day when I own a house, I can plant these outside because they smell amazing. Anyway, we have a great show planned for today. Lauren, what do we have queued up? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Heritage Foundation Research Associate Melanie Israel about chemical abortions. Melanie dives deep into the history and controversy of chemical abortions and explains some of the dangers they pose to women. Plus, three Republican lawmakers are taking action to force a vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection. And we break down what you need to know about the controversy over Taylor Swift's new album, Fearless, which is just her old album, Fearless, re-recorded. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. (laughs) 
I am so pleased to be joined by Melanie Israel, a research associate in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. Melanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. You have just published an in-depth paper on the topic of chemical abortions. You cover a really broad spectrum in this paper on the subject from how, how they operate, the potential harms to women, um, the FDA's involvement. But I want to begin by just asking you to explain what a chemical bor- abortion is. Sure, sure. And um, to be clear, the pro-abortion side prefers to call it medication abortion, um, kind of to to give it more of a a veneer of respectability, um, I guess you could say. But ultimately what it is, chemical abortion, the abortion pill regimen, is when a woman typically takes two different types of medication. The first one is the actual abortion pill. It's called Mifepristone, um, its brand name Mifeprex. Some people might also know it by its trade name, RU486. Um, that is the pill that a woman takes, and it essentially cuts off nutrients to her developing child. And then after that has happened, um, about a, a day, two days later, a woman takes a second pill, which is misoprostol, um, brand name Cytotec, to actually cause her to have that cramping that then expels the pregnancy. Um, To be clear, Cytotec, that second pill in the abortion regimen, was not ever meant to be part of the abortion pill regimen. Um, That is actually a medication for a a completely different um, indication that had nothing to do with abortion. Um, Just over the years, people kind of found out that one of its side effects is uterine cramping. And so some women might also remember taking Cytotec when they're being induced to go into labor, um, or if they're managing a miscarriage for a pregnancy that has already ended um, on its own spontaneously. But in those other circumstances where this medication is being used off-label, you know, you're in the hospital for an induction, um, that is under the supervision of multiple medical professionals. Um, It's contraindicated if you've had things like previous uterine surgeries, like C-sections, they have to monitor you to make sure that you don't have any kinds of complications. And so it's really, really interesting to see kind of this disparity between how we treat the off-label use of this drug in one circumstance compared to chemical abortion when a woman is just sent home, do it on your own at home, maybe call us if you have any problems, see you later. Um, It's just such a, a really, really different experience. So essentially the first pill that the woman takes ends the life of the child and then the second pill is what actually causes her body to go into labor um, to expel the baby. Right. And this um, this abortion pill regimen, the abortion pill, it is approved through the FDA to be used through um, about 10 weeks gestation. Um, though, of course, we, we know that some providers don't actually follow that limit. Um, and in fact, there's studies taking place um, in other places Um, overseas to have chemical abortion pills being used for second trimester abortions as well. And it's worth noting that the farther along a woman is in her pregnancy, the more likely she is 
to experience complications. Um, we know that with chemical abortion, the complication rates are four times higher than they are for surgical abortion, um, which is crazy to think about because the abortion lobby says that chemical abortion, it, it's so easy. It's like having a heavy period. You can do it at home. It's no big deal. They really downplay the risks and offer it, um, you know, as being this, this great alternative to surgical abortion. And when you actually look at the complication rates, a four times higher complication rate is not great. Yeah. And when you say complications, what exactly, what, what does that mean? Are these long-term? Is this just, you know, a lot of heavy bleeding and, and pain? What does that mean that it's complicated? Yeah. yeah. So just um, b- because of the nature of what we're talking about, we're talking about an abortion. Um, you know, basically any woman who's going through this regimen is going to experience um, a lot of cramping, a lot of bleeding. Um, that's unavoidable, really, um, given what this actual process is doing. There's also the things like nausea, vomiting, um, those are kind of things that you expect. But then some of the more serious complications that you can get into, a woman can get an infection if the abortion is incomplete. Um, If she has an ectopic pregnancy where um, the the pregnancy was located outside of the uterus and a provider did not adequately screen her for that or determine the location of the pregnancy, that can be a fatal complication um, if that ectopic pregnancy ruptures. Um, There's also sepsis. Um, We know of 24 deaths that have been associated with the abortion pill, um, things like hemorrhaging, um, which of course is is extreme blood loss. Um, A a good percentage of women, I I think it's around 10%, I'd I'd have to go back and double check in my paper, um, are going to have an incomplete abortion and they're going to end up having to have a surgical abortion anyway to, um, to complete the process. And so the, the FDA is aware of thousands of adverse events. And unfortunately, when we talk about that tracking process, this all has to come with a caveat for several reasons. Um, First of all, abortion reporting in general in the United States um, is not really streamlined. We we don't have a a great system. A lot of the numbers that the CDC reports can be a couple years out of date. Not every state submits data, different states have different ways that they collect data and present that data. And so it can be a little bit hard to to make those apples to apples comparisons. And so the the whole system of abortion reporting in the United States leaves much to be desired in general. But beyond that, in 2016, the Obama administration weakened the um, FDA requirements about reporting complications for the abortion pill. Um, One of the the stipulations for the maker of the abortion pill um, and anyone who prescribes these pills originally was that they needed to report all adverse events that they're aware of to the drug sponsor so that the drug sponsor can periodically collect those and report those to the FDA. In 2016, the Obama administration weakened that requirement and said that only deaths have to be reported. And so, of course, you can see now it's easy for the abortion lobby to say, oh, there's a low rate of 
complications, no big deal, nothing to worry about. Well, you're going to have lower reported rates if that reporting is not mandatory. It's voluntary now. And so people do still report. We do still have these thousands of adverse events coming in, but it's not mandatory. And often a woman who's experiencing these kinds of complications, like extreme blood loss, um, you know, running fever days on end, bleeding for over a month afterwards, she's probably going to be reporting to an emergency room, not the same abortion doctor who gave her these pills, because of course they are abortionists. Um, you, you typically don't go to a you know, family practitioner or your regular OBGYN for these kinds of abortion pills, because most of those doctors have no interest in prescribing those pills. Um, so, you know, if a woman is going to be showing up to an emergency room with these complications, they may not even know to report that adverse event. A woman might feel ashamed to even say that she's there because of complications for an abortion, or it might be characterized as a, a spontaneous miscarriage. There, there's just so many different ways um, that we know we're not capturing the full scope of all of these different complications that women do experience on a large scale from these dangerous abortion pills. And how long have these pills been on the market? The FDA approved the abortion pill for the U.S. market in September 2000. So it's been um, on the market here for just over two decades um, it originally went onto the market in France in the late 80s, and it took a very, very long time for anybody to actually bring it to the United States because so many pharmaceutical companies here wanted nothing to do with manufacturing abortion pills. Um, and in fact, the, um, the group that eventually did bring it to market in the United States, they had to go overseas um, to even find a manufacturer willing to make these pills for them. Um, and they landed on a manufacturer in China, which of course has its own, you know, loaded implications. Um, these pills were being manufactured in a country with, at the time, a very draconian one-child policy. Now, of course, a, a two-child policy, but still uh, very inhumane um, family planning practices family planning practices um, for sterilization, forced abortions. Um, and so it, it's really kind of adding, I, I guess, insult to injury um, that they couldn't get it manufactured in the United States for so many different reasons. And so they had to go to China of all places to be able to have it done. So if the risks are known, why did the FDA all of a sudden say, okay, yeah, we'll approve this, we'll allow women to take these pills, take them home, and essentially have an abortion on their own? Yeah, it, it's such, um, it, it's so interesting to go and look back at the whole approval process. Um, and it's something I, I get into um, a lot more in depth in the paper. But essentially, you had a presidential administration that wanted to make this happen. Um, one of his very first, and we are talking within the first days of his presidency um, in 1993, President Bill Clinton told the Department of HHS um, and his um, HHS secretary, we need to make this happen. We need to bring the abortion pill 
to the United States. And he actually had um, people from the highest levels of the United States government petitioning to um, the, the French maker of the abortion pill and working relentlessly behind the scenes to do what they could to bring this pill to the United States market. Um, they ended up working with the um, Population Council, which was this um, organization you know, solely devoted to bringing the abortion pill to the U.S. market and working with the abortion lobby like Planned Parenthood and other organizations. And the Clinton administration really worked behind the scenes to connect the Population Council with the European counterparts um, to, to bring the drug to the U.S. market. And so um, it, it took multiple rounds of review through the FDA. Um, they ended up deciding that there would be these various restrictions on the abortion pill um, in order to let it be marketed in the United States. They eventually did give that approval in 2000. But some of these restrictions have to do with things like you have to be a qualified prescriber. So a person, a, a doctor has to affirmatively seek out through um, the maker of the abortion pill to be able to prescribe these pills. Um, any doctor in America is not a qualified prescriber. You, you can't just go to anybody and ask for a prescription for an abortion pill. And of course, with that kind of self-selection dynamic going on, it really is pretty limited to specifically abortion providers in large part, your, your Planned Parenthoods and, and other kinds of abortion clinics. There's restricted dispensing requirements. Um, it has to be directly dispensed by that person doing the prescribing. So you can't just go to Walgreens and pick up a prescription for an abortion pill. Um, it, it's really being done directly through that prescriber. Um, and so there, there's these various restrictions, like we talked about the, the mandatory reporting of deaths. Um, so we, we do have these restrictions in place, but the abortion lobby is actively seeking to do away with those restrictions. And who now is making these pills? Are they still coming from manufacturers in China? So that's one of the, the really interesting dynamics here. Um, the, the FDA has never um, publicly actually said who this manufacturer is. Um, at the time, I believe it was because the, the manufacturer in China volunteered that information um, and said that they were the ones making it. Um, in the United States, the, the FDA and um, Danco, the, the company that um, sponsors the drug, they didn't want that information to be public. Um, that information was, you know, redacted from, from documents and court documents. They wanted to keep it a secret. And the justification is really dubious. They said they didn't want to um, subject the manufacturer to things like protests and threats of violence from, you know, those terrible pro-lifers. And it, it's really strange to think about because this manufacturer, it's in China, they don't allow you to protest in China. Um, and, and so just a, a really dubious justification there. Um, and even today, we don't actually know for sure where these pills are being manufactured. They might still be manufactured in China, um, but we don't know that for sure because the FDA does not make that information public. And you talk a bit in your paper about uh, where 
women can can get these pills. We've chatted about, of course, they can walk into a Planned Parenthood or another abortion clinic and receive those, but there's also a way for them to purchase them online, correct? That's right. Um, and the the U.S. government, the the FDA, they warn women not to purchase these pills from online pharmacies from overseas sources. Um, but of course, people do. Um, sometimes those drugs are seized when they're coming into the United States, but very often they're not. And in fact, there are um, multiple organizations that are dedicated to getting women those illegal foreign sourced abortion pills, um, which of course has so many horrifying implications. Um, one of the studies that I talk about in the paper is where some pro-abortion, um, this is coming from the pro-abortion side, which is um, probably a little bit more astounding given their conclusion, which I'll get to. Um, but in their study, they ordered dozens and dozens of abortion pills from pharmacies overseas, places like China, India, other places. And then once they took possession of those pills, they ran tests to see if they even had the, the advertised amount of these different um, medications, mifepristone, the abortion pill, and misoprostol, the pill that you take to do the cramping to, to complete the abortion. And what they found is many of these packages, they didn't come with the advertised amount of medication. None of them came with any kind of instruction guide um, of even how many pills to, to take, um, what potential side effects could be, what complications you could experience, um, no information, uh, ju just the pills. Some of the packaging had been um, tampered with, um, partially opened. And um, again, some of the pills didn't even contain the advertised amount of the chemical composition of what it was advertised to contain. And yet these, these pro-abortion researchers concluded um, really just kind of a, a mealy mouth conclusion. They said that this was a suboptimal buying experience, but they could see how many women would think this is a rational choice. Wow. So I, you know, from the perspective of uh, the pro-choice side, I think, you know, a lot of um, individuals that support abortion might say, well, we need to keep chemical abortions, you know, legal and very accessible at Planned Parenthoods and so on and so forth. Because if that ends, then what we'll see is, you know, all these women will just go online and they'll buy these pills. And, you know, there's not as many controls or like you said, like, we don't even really know what's in them. Um, so what would be your response to that, to individuals saying, no, 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 it's actually much better to keep these pills legal in the United States so that there's not this increase in the black market? You know, I, I think it's one of those questions where there's so many different answers. Um, but one of the things I think we have to keep coming back to is that even these pills that people are getting at Planned Parenthood and other places through, um, you know, the, the currently allowed protocol, they're still very, very dangerous to women. Um, and so essentially what the proposition is, is, you know, dangerous choice A or dangerous choice B. Um, and of course, for, for a pro-life person like myself who works in this policy space, 
I don't think we need to choose either one of these. Um, I, I think we need to, to educate people on the dangers of the abortion pill, no matter where you're getting it from, whether it's Planned Parenthood or a, a sketchy pharmacy overseas. Um, regardless, it, it's dangerous to women's health and safety. It's obviously dangerous to, to the life of their unborn child. And we also need to do more to let people know that there is the possibility of abortion pill reversal. Um, doctors who, um, if you contact them soon enough, can get a woman um, access to progesterone, which is the uh, hormone that can basically counteract the effect of that first round of the abortion pill regimen. And in fact, there are hundreds and hundreds of children who are with us today because their mothers chose to take that abortion pill reversal regimen. They changed their minds halfway through. And so so much of it has to do with education, but also just more broadly in culture, um, making sure we're doing everything we can to welcome life so that women don't feel like they have to, to have this choice um, of having an abortion. And I'll also note for so many women, it, it's not actually a choice. Um, it's something that they feel pressured into, something that they're being coerced into. And I, I would just caution people thinking, especially if the abortion lobby has their way and abortion pills are available through telemedicine, um, getting it through mail order, available in retail pharmacies, or even over the counter. Um, that's what some abortion advocates want, just abortion pills over the counter, no prescription required, no questions asked. Imagine what that would mean in the hands of an abusive partner, a coercive partner, a trafficker. Um, there, there would be such a, a profound human cost. And so for as much as the abortion lobby talks about choice, I think we also need to remember that for so many women, it's not actually a choice. And uh, just this week, we saw that the FDA took measures to allow for you know, even continuing to have even easier access to these pills. Could you talk a little bit about that? Right, right. So, um, you know, Tuesday morning, waking up to the news, the, the FDA has announced that they are not going to be enforcing the in-person dispensing requirements for the abortion pill. Um, and so that opens the door in many states for women to be receiving these pills through mail um, allows for a much looser telemedicine model. And I will note in, um, I believe it's 19 states right now, um, that sort of uh, telemedicine abortion by mail scheme is not allowed. Um, so even with the FDA taking this action, um, there are still some, some protections in certain states, but not all. And this is really um, not a surprising action uh, this is something that the abortion lobby has been agitating for for the duration of the pandemic. Um, they're not going to let a crisis go to waste. And what this is actually about is about laying the groundwork for them to permanently do away with that in-person dispensing requirement and really do away with um, most, if not all, of all of those various restrictions that the FDA has in place. Because again, the ultimate vision of the abortion lobby is for chemical abortion pills to be available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. You tell the story of a woman named Holly Patterson in your paper. Could you share a little bit about Holly? Yes, yes. Thank you so much for asking about that, because I think it's so, so important that we really humanize this conversation, because for 
you know, throwing out statistics, 24 deaths, 4,000 adverse events. I, I think it's really helpful for us to think about the individual people behind those statistics. So Holly Patterson was an 18 year old woman in California. She was seven weeks pregnant and she went to Planned Parenthood um, to receive the chemical abortion pill regimen. And unfortunately, a, a week after starting that chemical abortion process, she went into septic shock from a very rare infection and that infection killed her. Um, she was the first person in the United States known to have died in this way. This happened in 2003, um, and the abortion pill, of course, had been approved just a couple years earlier. Um, but unfortunately, she was not the last person to, to die in this manner. And so, um, you know, again, when we talk about these complications, these serious complications, including the fatal complications, I think it's worth keeping in mind that um, these are these are real women here. These are our our neighbors, our friends, um, sisters, daughters, wives. And when the abortion lobby downplays the risks of dangerous abortion pills, I think we need to take a step back and really remember the the human cost of getting this question wrong. So then what are the steps forward? What should you know, policymakers at the state and federal level be doing to protect women from the risks of chemical abortions? It's, um, it's going to be a huge lift. Um, right now, obviously, the, the Biden administration, they are really letting the um, abortion lobby call the shots. They, they are beholden to the abortion lobby. And so um, in my paper, I, I outlined some of the things that they could be doing at the federal level that would be strengthening these restrictions, that would be um, increasing transparency um, and taking decisive action. But of course, we, we don't expect the Biden administration to do any of that. And so where that leaves us um, is really looking to the states, state legislators, who want to protect women from these dangerous pills can act. They can do things um, like add those additional restrictions to do things like banning telemedicine abortion um, to, to increasing their informed consent requirements um, and other um, reporting standards, um, making sure that people really know the risks, know that we're tracking the risks, um, all kinds of things that they can be doing at the state level in the absence of that federal action. And one of the dangers I think that um, many people at the state level might not realize is that these restrictions that are in place for the abortion pill, um, that can be done away with by agency action. And unfortunately, many state laws that are in place right now um, are there in reference to those FDA restrictions that could be wiped away at any moment by the Biden administration. And so a, a state might have restrictions in place right now and think that, okay, everything is good, we're safe. But actually, that's not the case. Um, if they are relying purely on the FDA's um, advisories and those then go away, then a state is going to have a problem. And so um, that's why it, it's so important that individual states take a look at what their laws specifically say 
right now and, and really look for areas that they can improve the situation to protect women and to protect women's unborn children. Melanie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing on this issue. We will link your paper in the show notes so that um, anyone who wants to read it and go through it, it's incredibly helpful, filled with so much wonderful information. But we really thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an important conversation. Now stay tuned for Lauren and I's conversation about the Born Alive Abortion Survivor Protection Act Plus, we chat about Taylor Swift's new album. But first, I want to tell you all about an awesome Heritage Foundation resource called the Index of Economic Freedom. The Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom ranks nearly every nation in the world according to its level of economic freedom. Whether for personal, professional, or school research, the index is a wealth of information. Learn why it's easier to start a business in Switzerland than it is in France, and where America falls on the ranking. Sadly, it might be a little bit lower than you would think. So go ahead and visit heritage.org index to explore the newly released 2021 Index of Economic Freedom, which features interactive maps, country rankings, graphs of data, and much, much more. Welcome back. Democrats have blocked a vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act more than 75 times. So you would think that the bill must be really controversial. Nope. The Born Alive Act simply seeks to protect the life of a baby born alive after a botched abortion. Yep, that's it. The bill just prevents infanticide. This week, three Republican lawmakers, including friend of the show, Representative Kat Kamick of Florida, introduced something called a discharge petition for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. A discharge petition essentially forces Congress to vote on a bill, but the petition is required to receive 218 signatures from House members first. So for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act discharge petition to force a vote on the bill, all 211 Republicans and seven Democrats have to sign the petition. Virginia, do you think there's any chance that this could happen? So sadly, short answer, probably not. Um, In order, like you said, to reach that 218 signatures, there would have to be seven Democrats that sign on. And that seems unlikely, which is really tragic. They can't even get seven Democrats to sign on to essentially a bill that just ends in fanicide. So this isn't actually the first time that uh, Republican lawmakers have filed a discharge petition for the Born Alive Act. During the last Congress, Representative Steve Scalise, Republican of Louisiana, and Representative Ann Wagner, Republican of Missouri, issued the same petition, and it received more signatures within 24 hours than any other discharge petition to date. Every House Republican, along with three Democrats, signed that petition, but it was still not enough to reach that 218 signature requirement in order to bring a vote to the House floor. So because seven Democrat signatures are needed for the petition, it seems unlikely that it's going to move forward. But we'll see what happens. Um, time is definitely on our side with this because the petition doesn't expire. It stays good throughout the entire Congress. So for the whole 117th Congress, if, you know, in six months someone has a change of heart and decides to sign on, they can. So that's good. It stays open. 
And it's awesome to see the commitment from Republicans that they're really continuing to push and pursue this. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a it's a small shot, but I'm really glad that they're pursuing and taking the shot. And Lauren, Representative uh, Kat Kamick, is, she's the youngest female GOP member serving in Congress. So this is, I mean, this is a big piece of, of legislation that she's really pushing forward, that she's really driving. What do you think her actions say about millennials' view on the life issue since she is a millennial herself and is leading the charge on this? I mean, it is a, a little glimmer of hope. I wish she was a greater representation of millennial women. And I think they're trending that way as as we're getting older and as we're reaching childbearing age and, and, and even just our friends having children. I, I think that's affecting us all. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed in my fellow women <laughs> when it comes to this issue. Yeah. No, I do have a lot of really great pro-life friends. <sighs> Unfortunately, we're... Sometimes in the minority. Yeah. So, yeah. But just all the more, make sure that you're always talking to your friends. You don't ever be too abrasive about the issue, but but stand up for what you believe in. Be firm. Because I really do think most women deep down really do value life and, and value each individual human being. And I just can't believe how anybody could argue against if a baby's born, like give it the medical t- attention that it needs to, yeah. to live and survive. Yeah, no, it's almost infathomable to <laughs> it. just seems so, so basic. Like, of course, we would protect a child who was born alive. Of course, that's so standard. That's the right to life, to keep on living, to have a fair shot. So, all right. Well, we can't not spend just a moment today. Talking about our favorite pop Wait, star. Virginia, our favorite pop star. That is. I didn't want to leave you out. Fake Lauren. news. Virginia Allen striking again. Taylor Swift. Oh, no. Nope. 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 I need like a note button. <laughs> All right. Well, so Swift has just released a new album called Fearless. Taylor's version, which is just a re-recording of her 2008 album, Fearless. So the question is, why? Why would Swift take the time to recut so many old songs? Essentially, I would say the short answer is it's business, uh, maybe a little bit of a longer answer, intellectual property rights. So we're going to dive into what exactly happened here. So when Swift was just Getting going in her career in 2005, she signed a six-album record deal with a recording label called Big Machine Records. The contract gave Big Machine the ownership rights of Taylor's albums. Later on, Swift wanted to reacquire those rights of her songs so that she owned those property rights for all six of her first albums. Long story short, Big Machine and Swift, they did not reach an agreement. So in 2019, Swift left Big Machine behind, and she signed a contract with Republic Records. In 2019, Big Machine was also acquired by another company, but Swift uh, still was upset with the company that used to be Big Machine for not allowing her to reacquire the rights to her own music. So she blocked her songs from being used in movies and commercials, which would be a financial benefit for Big Machine. She could do this because even though she didn't own the rights to the songs, she wrote the songs, which means she holds power of what is called the Master Use License 
for each of those songs. A master use license is required for a song to be used in a film or a commercial. So because Swift wrote the songs, she had the right to re-record those songs under the master use licensing. I know, it's a little confusing. So now she's re-recorded a bunch of her old songs. She also owns what is called the sync license for the song under her contract with Republic Records, which means she can receive the full financial benefit when a filmmaker, for example, wants to, you know, use one of her romantic songs as a cute couple walks on the beach in a chick flick. Long story short, Swift pulled a pretty smooth business move here, but this could be viewed really in in two ways, either as something that, you know, was really kind of brilliant for her to do of, uh, Know, making those smart business moves in order to receive that full financial benefit for her music, or it could be viewed as kind of dirty play, foul play. I don't know. Lauren, what do you think? I think this is so typical Taylor Swift. <laughs> she signed the contract, and does it stink? Yes. It is it not necessarily the business tactics by Big Machine Records? Yes. But is it totally above board? Yes. And so, Taylor, like, you... You signed the contract. Like, live with the consequences. And he, it even turned out fine. Like, I, I, now the songs are now everywhere. All, every, like, 30-year-old woman posts on Instagram them, like, <laughs> listening to them again. And everybody's like, yeah, now it's great. I can listen to Fearless when I can buy wine and drive a car. <laughs> but I, I think what you, you really should see in this story is to value yourself. Even before the world values you, she should have looked and said, wow, six albums is a lot. If I blow up, this would be not great for my business and and negotiated the contract back then. Maybe it's two albums, maybe it's three albums, but I mean, six seem, does seem like a lot, but just typical Taylor Swift always, even when she's a millionaire with like every woman in America loving her music, she's still the victim. Well, and I guess I wonder though how much is that kind of shrewd business skill that she has the reason why she's done as well as she has? Like, yeah, this is uh, it, it's it's a little it's a little shady. I don't really she she didn't handle this in at all the best way she could have. I I think morally it's questionable. It's legal. It's a little questionable. Uh, but there's a reason why she is as wealthy as she is. I guess. Well, yeah, because she hired good lawyers. <laughs> if, well, she had good, too. if she had a good business sense, she wouldn't have signed the contract in the first place. Uh, well, maybe we should talk to her manager. <laughs> <laughs> well, Virginia, let's agree to disagree. And with that, we'll be right back. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Bluey, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to Han Lei. Han Lei is Burma's Miss Grand International. 
Miss Grand International is a beauty pageant, and like many beauty pageants, contestants are given the opportunity to give a speech about something that they are passionate about. Han Lake chose to put her own safety at risk by speaking out against the violence in her home nation of Burma and to speak in support of the pro-democracy protests. There is currently a military coup going on in Burma, which first began about two months ago. Over 700 people have been killed by police and military just since February. At the end of March, Han Lei used her few minutes of time on stage at the Miss Grand International Pageant in Thailand to speak to the world and ask for help for the people of her country. Let's take a listen to a portion of Han Lei's speech at the pageant. There are so many people dying, more than 100 people dying today. I deeply be sorry for all the people who have lost their life. The people from Myanmar, they are working on the streets for the democracy. I'm also the one who wrote in for the democracy on the stage right now. Thank you so much to the Mediterranean International Organization to give me such a great opportunity to speak out my words through this platform to the international. I want to say from here that please help Myanmar. We need your urgent international help right now. In my opinion, that is the epitome of courage, to stand on a stage with the world watching and ask for help to bring democracy to your government because men, women, and children are being, are being slaughtered by the military. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has actually been working with the Biden administration to respond to the situation in Burma. There's not a lot of agreement between Biden and McConnell, but this is one area where they've been able to work together. Biden has placed a number of sanctions on military officials in Burma. The situation is still pretty dire there, but Hanley's speech has brought a lot of attention to the situation. And even though Hanley didn't win the crown for the Miss Grand International Beauty Pageant, we are so pleased to crown her our Problematic Woman of the Week. I think it's a pretty good consolation prize. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. And don't forget to post your spring photo on Instagram. Use the hashtag Problematic Women so I can find the photo. Enjoy the beautiful weather. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.